Isaiah 66 today and read verses 7 through 13, and that will guide our reflections in the sermon today. So God's word, Isaiah 66, starting at verse 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Hmm. That's Isaiah 63. So don't read the words on the screen. This is a good opportunity to note there's a Bible in your pew. Let's go to Isaiah 66. And... Uh, Isaiah 66, and I'll start at verse 7. All right, hear the word of the Lord. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a child. Who has ever heard of such things? Who's ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet, no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the, do I bring to the moment of birth and not give deliberately, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. As a mother, comes from verse 13 and is my title. My still question in my mind is, is this a Mother's Day sermon? So if the standard is this is a sermon and it is Mother's Day, then this is definitely a Mother's Day sermon. But if you're expecting me to teach you all about motherhood and so on, I have very little experience with that as I've been reminded many times, and so I'm not going to go into that direction. I think what I want to focus on is, is, well, let me say this first. Generally speaking, I do not do Mother's Day sermons, and it's nothing against mothers. It's that I prefer to let the church calendar and the biblical calendar shape what we speak on and let Hallmark find its own days and so on, all right? So nothing against having these days. I just don't like it to guide the preaching journey. However, there is this thought in my mind about the biblical language of the motherhood of God that I wanted to lean into, and so that's probably more the topic than Mother Day's, Mother's Day, so I probably just needed to say it will not be a typical Mother's Day sermon, because I'm not sure what that is. It'll be a sermon about God functioning as a mother, and handily it is also Mother's Day, and that connects, okay? So first, a couple of questions that you need to help me with. As you know, the, the Bible is not a book, the Bible is a library, right? It's 66, oh, no, I just gave it away. Oh. 
All right, who knows how many books there are in the Bible? You guys are amazing. <laughs> how many are in the Old Testament? 39, very good. And quick math, what's how many left in the New Testament? 27. 27, all right, good work. Anyone know why I asked that question? Good, that's always a good thing. How many chapters are there in Isaiah? 66, did we just hear that number? Yeah, what happens at Isaiah 40, anyone? Yeah, it's actually John the Baptist even. It's, it's the, uh, there's, there's um, a voice crying in the wilderness, right? Like John cried in the wilderness. So there's this interesting parallel, and let's be really clear that I'm not actually suggesting that the 66 chapters of Isaiah line up perfectly with the 66 books of the Bible. It's just a really handy way for me to get into this message, okay? So let's be clear about that. Um, there's a, there's a little bit of a parallel in that Isaiah, many, many people think there's at least two authors to Isaiah, and that it looks like the first author did 1 through 39, and the second author did the other 27 chapters, right? Um, and what's striking to me is if you think of each chapter of Isaiah connecting with each book of the Bible, of course, chapter 66 that we're looking at would be the book of Revelation, the final one. <laughs> And there's a fair number of parallels in this chapter with the book of Revelation, which again isn't surprising without all those numbers, because Isaiah is a prophecy and Revelation is basically an apocalyptic prophecy, and so there's going to be a parallel no matter what. So I'm going to show you a few of the parallels by way of introduction, and then we're going to land in the as a mother part of um, imagery of this passage, okay? Hope that was more helpful than confusing. Um, Isaiah 6, 6 is like Revelation that, one, it has a heavenly throne room, right? Heaven is my throne, very first verse of Isaiah 66. If you go to Revelation 4 and 5, there's this amazing vision of the heavenly throne room where John is called up to see what's going on behind the scenes, so to speak, right? So that's parallel number one. There are confusing images. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, is it not full of confusing images? It's dream language. It's, it's very difficult language, right? And so this kind of a line, whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. In a book with Leviticus in it that says you need to offer a lamb, in a book with um, the Exodus in it, which is the start of the Passover and the commandment that you should kill a lamb and wipe its blood on the doorpost so that I will pass over your house with judgment right? Makes it really strange, one, just to think about this image, and two, to wonder why in the world that's in there. Confusing images, connection between Isaiah 66 and the book of Revelation. Third, abominations. In your pew Bible, the NIV version that we've been using, abominations shows up basically three times, and one of them's here, and one of them's in the book of Revelation, right? That whole, um, the whole idea of things that are, are um, basically religiously detestable. That's what an abomination actually technically is, right? And so here they have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. The book of Revelation, if you understand it at all, has all kinds of images of, of Babylon and, and the uh, great prostitute and all these, uh, and the dragon, all these negative images, right, that are completely defiling what God wants to happen in his world. Another parallel to in Isaiah 66 and Revelation. And then judgment. 
It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Now, every book of prophecy in the Old Testament has plenty of judgment in it, and basically that's why we don't like to read them. Is that fair to say? Right? Or if we do read them, you do what I did this morning. You pick the nice verses in the middle, 7 through 13, and you don't delve up too much into that other stuff. Let's just be honest about this reality. Our world does not like to think about judgment most of the time. There is a time when we do like judgment, if we're honest, right? When it applies to other people, right? So sometimes people will come to me and say, you know, you need to talk about more about sin and, and you need to you know, do this or do that so that we emphasize that kind of stuff more. And this is just a bit of a warning in case you do want to come and ask me this. This is how it goes. This is my question. Which one of those are you struggling with? Oh, no, 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 I, I'm not struggling. It's, I don't make you say this, but you're implying it's for other people. Now, let's be honest, that's how we deal with judgment, right? So, Ruthann and I listened to a comic many years ago, and um, they were talking about driving, and they said, isn't it interesting that when you're driving along, if someone's going slower than you, oh, what a slowpoke, come on, get going, drive. But if they're going faster than you, they're a maniac, right? Because you are the core of all judgment. You're the center, right? And everybody else is judged according to you. You know what you're doing, right? You just made yourself God. I am the source of what truth is, and your being ahead of me or behind me helps me determine my judgment on you. More seriously than how people drive is this way in which we interact with the fact that if somebody hurts me, there must be a price paid. There must be justice, and I will hang on to that, and I'll be angry about that, and I'll lose sleep over that, and I will expect and demand and want that to take place. But if I do something, or someone really close to me does something, I'm going to want to talk about the reasons behind that and the excuses behind that, and then I want to talk a little bit about mercy, for example. And where does that come into play here, right? So all that just to help us hang on to the reality that, that judgment is a pretty tricky thing in our minds, and we're a little bit, we play a little bit loose with the rules around that. And the other side of that is this, that we want God to be loving and merciful, and he is, but he's also just, right? And there's all kinds of theology around holding these two things at the same time, because that's exactly what we need to do. Because if God isn't just, if there is no such thing as judgment, if there's no way for things to be made right, we're in a lot of trouble. And this world's a mess, and God isn't particularly loving. Because if God in the end says, you know what, everyone just do what you want, I'll clean it up in the end, right? If there's no laws in our land, if anyone could just do whatever they want, take whatever they want, wherever they wanted to, do, go wherever they want, it would be a mess, and we would all hate it. We all like that there's boundaries, and we want there to be judgments about that, right? But we also need to hang on to the fact that since we're all making a mess of this, it is also a good desire that we want to see mercy and forgiveness and healing. And, by the way, that's exactly the message of the Bible. This loving God who can't stand anything that's done wrong that hurts anyone, or anyone even hurting themselves, 
finds a way to heal and restore and renew, being both just and judging and merciful and loving. That's what the book of Revelation is about. That's what Isaiah 66 is about. That's actually what the whole Jesus story, the Bible, is all about. In the book of Revelation and in Isaiah 66, there's a surprising birth, which has everything to do with that justice and mercy components of God coming together. In the book of Revelation, by the way, it's chapter 12, where the woman is about to give birth, and there's a dragon there about to devour the child as it's born, and the child is amazingly whisked away by an angel as soon as he's born. Pretty awesome, a lot like Jesus, right? And here, before she goes into labor, she gives birth. All the moms are going, how do you get that deal? Right? So God is saying, yep, there's stuff wrong, and I don't like it, and it needs to be fixed, and I'm going to step in in a miraculous and powerful way, as we know he did with Jesus, right, and do this with this amazing and surprising birth. And in Isaiah 66 and in the book of Revelation, there's a new or renewed Jerusalem. In Isaiah, it's rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. And in the book of Revelation, it's chapter 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of, the, out of heaven as a new Jerusalem, as a holy city, prepared as a bride for her husband. And this image of God saying, one, it's going to come down out of heaven to us is God's way of saying, I'm going to come and be with you. As I've said here many times and think I need to keep on repeating, this deal we're doing about following Jesus is not saying, if I believe in Jesus, then later I get pulled out of here and I get to go to a different place. Now, this deal about following Jesus is he came into this world to change the way I live in this world so that all of this world can be a place where God dwells through his people and with his people and around his people. It's about this life. Don't be waiting for later to get going on this deal. And I think finally, yep, finally, both Isaiah 66 and the book of Revelation have peaceful abundance in the end. Someone summarized the book of Revelation as having this um, basic theme, God wins, right? So even as you're reading all these horrible things, recognize that in the end, God lands us with peaceful abundance in the end. Where it says in Isaiah 66, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. The end of the book of Revelation is this stream with the living water um, coming through it. And there's trees on each side and there are leaves for the healing of the nation. And there's just this sense of peace and beauty. And it talks about no more tears, no more weeping, and God being with his people. So, all of that, in my mind, connects us with the mother heart of God. There was a study done way back when I was at Calvin Seminary. It was done by um, the, some study center at Calvin University, Calvin College at the time. And what they did was they put up different words and they just asked people, if you think of that word, do you think male or female? It was a, it was a gender study. And it was interesting that most people, when you took the words that we call the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, and the one that I always forget. Faithfulness, yeah, thank you. 
I hope I don't have a problem with faithfulness. I keep forgetting that one. That's, that's a little terrible. Anyways, different conversation for later. People, when they had those words, many of them picked them as female words. Right? And now, again, I don't know how you go about this. It was a gut. It's an instinct kind of thing. Right? Those aren't female words. Those are spirit words. Those are truth words. Those are words of how we're meant to be in this world. Right? But I, what I want to get at there is, one, though the Bible uses lots of language around God, our Heavenly Father, God is not male. Those are different things. Right? God doesn't have gender. God's God. God created male and female. In fact, the Genesis 1, when it gives us the image of God, it says, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And so the image and both genders are how we represent who God is in this world. And so, yes, there's a usual way um, for all kinds of reasons of talking about God, but let's not go so far as to say that you have to call God Father, because if you're here and you heard Brandon praying and you recognize, yeah, the idea of mother has some pain for it for me, right? Then, yeah, you're going to lean into Father. But if it's the other way around for you and, and the idea of God as Father is actually something traumatizing for you because of your experience, then you need to be recognizing, you know what, there's, there's a mother heart to God as well. And look at this image. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. Now, we looked at this passage as a staff team this week, and we all got stuck in that cool word, dandled, right? Because I don't know about you, I don't walk around saying dandled very often, except till this week, never. Let's go with that. Dandled is this, it's, it's like you have a toddler on your lap. I'm just going to pretend I can squat and do that, but I think I need to sit down. <laughs> Right? And there's a toddler sitting on your lap, and they're, they're doing that wobbly walk, and you're holding on to their hands, right? That's dandling, and it's, it's a lot of fun. It's hours of fun, right? It's, it's beautiful. It's that loving, playful presence where the child feels safe and, and gets to have the fun of exploring and learning and growing. That's how God holds on to us, right? And then this. God is a comforting presence. As a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you, and you'll be comforted over Jerusalem. Comfort, comfort, comfort. The God who understands what's messed up and doesn't like it and judges it is also the God who wants to hold us in his embrace and comfort us. So I've told you a couple of times, I believe that I have a, a spiritual director. I don't know if I told you if in finding my spiritual director I looked for somebody very different from me. I did not get another 50-something male Christian Reformed pastor because I know how we think I do that all the time. I got somebody other. And uh, she does this really neat stuff with me. It's always surprising, which is good for me. I don't want to know where we're going to go, because then I'll get there before you, in my mind. And so this time, we, she said, we're going to go into a, uh, into a passage. And I have done this before. It's, it's from St. Ignatius of Loyola. It's also what we do in the week of guided prayer. So you read a passage of scripture, and eventually she invites you to be one of the characters in the story. And I did not tell her what I was preaching on this week. She probably did know it was Mother's Day this week. 
Um, but she said, we're going to go to the passage in Mark 10 where Jesus calls the little children to come to him. And I had actually done this before. I even have told you about this before. And I was quite determined after imagining myself in this scene that I wasn't going to be one of the children because I'd done that before. I was thinking I was going to be one of the disciples who was telling the kids to go away. You'll be glad to know I couldn't stay there. God didn't let me be that person. He told me to be a child again. And in this scene, so normally, I don't know how you think of this, this picture, right? Jesus is there, and his, the kids are, are coming to him. The parents are bringing them. He's going to bless them, right? And the disciples are going, come on, he's, he's, a, he's a big deal. He's, he's way too important. Get these kids out of here. And Jesus rebukes them and says, no, let the little children come to me. Because unless you come like these children, you don't understand. You can't inherit this kingdom. That's actually what it's all about, he says. Right? Jesus wants to give us this image. And so I enter into this thing, and, and in this time, it wasn't like five kids and, and, and a few parents. It was like a whole school classroom outside for me, like 30-some kids running around. Disciples are far away trying to push them away, and Jesus says, no, let them come to me. And I got to be one of those kids. And in spite of the crowds around, when it was my turn to sit on Jesus' lap, Nobody else was there. You know that feeling when somebody's paying enough attention to you that you don't care that there's anybody else around because you are being held and loved and comforted, right? Does anybody else have a mother who, though they disciplined you and told you what you could and couldn't do, also held you and loved you and allowed you to know the fullness of what it means to be cared for no matter what? God, as a mother, comforts her children. God wants to comfort and embrace and hold us, both when we need to be challenged and when we just simply need to be loved. Idea is simple. Experiencing that truth when you've been hurt in any way is a little more challenging. I want to encourage you to find a place to take the time to allow yourself to make sure that you know what it means, that God wants to embrace you and allow you to sit on his lap and comfort you and heal you and bring you to a place where you know his presence no matter what. And today, if this will help you, I'm going to stay up here after the service, and if you want to begin with a time of prayer with me today, feel free to do that. If there's somebody else standing up here as well, then they will likely pray with you as well. Um, and if any other time or any other place with any other people here, you need to have this conversation, I encourage you to do that. Because your ability to know God as that deep, loving, embracing parent is essential to any further step you're going to take in your walk with him. If you only know him as the judge, you're not going to walk further in this relationship of healing, forgiveness, and hope. Before the service, I had a quick chat with Brandon, and he told me that Ruthann gave him a prayer to guide his prayer. And I said, uh-oh, Ruthann also gave me a prayer to guide my prayer. They're very different. Listen to this prayer and allow it to shape your heart. Let's pray. O God of love, all other loves excelling, we are privileged to be your 
eternal family, to be children of such an amazing parent who loves us so perfectly. On this beautiful Mother's Day morning, we come to you celebrating the gift of family. We see your glory and your wisdom and the diversity of that gift, a diversity that has always existed. And so we pray for small families like Elizabeth and Zachariah and their precious only son, John, and for large families like Jacob's with his 12 sons. We ask your blessing on multi-generational families like Timothy's, whose mother and grandmother raised him in the faith. Bless single-person families like Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And we pray especially for broken families like King David's. And for those like Ruth and Naomi, who came through the pain of loss to establish new family ties. We see in your holy word and in our unholy world all kinds of families with every sort of challenge, joy, failure, and pain. You haven't given up on families, Lord, so help us to support them in all their shapes and situations. Families are not perfect places, no matter how hard we try, because we are imperfect people. We need to confess this, and we need your love and your kind and your kindness for each other. We need your kind of clean slate forgiveness for each other, and that's hard. There are folks whose greatest hurts were family blows, who just can't imagine forgiving or forgetting. We together come to you to ask, be healing in our damaged relationships and our painful memories. Show us how to deal with our grief and regrets and anger. Make us grateful when we've been parented wisely and well, and remind us all that we always have you and this covenant family as a home away from home. You are like a mother who will not abandon the child in her arms, like a father who runs to welcome the prodigal home. For you are love. And when we love, we are like you, Lord. Lord, we would reflect the love to our earthly family and to your eternal family and to your whole precious creation, which you loved enough to send your only son to save. Greater love has no one than this. And it's to you and in his dear name that we pray. Amen.